This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 25th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A girl picking daisies. A ringing telephone unanswered. A wolf on a prairie. Dangerous. Uncontained. These are the iconic scare images of presidential campaigns past. To them, add a new one. Same kind of music. Black and white images. Push in on a row of toilet stalls. Here are the words on the screen. Should a grown man pretending to be a woman be allowed to use a woman's restroom? The same restroom used by your daughter, your wife. Donald Trump thinks so. People go, they use the bathroom that they feel is appropriate. And then the ad tells us it's not appropriate. It's not the same. It's PC nonsense. That's destroying America. Donald Trump won't take on the PC police or the P-Police, as the case may be. This ad by Cruz for America was echoed by the candidate himself, who has made North Carolina's bathroom law a part of his stump speech. Strangers should not be alone in a bathroom with little girls. So today is the day to make accords with Ted Cruz. John Kasich is doing it. He's made his peace. Kasich, by the way, says as governor, he probably would not have signed a law similar to North Carolina's. That, by the way, makes Ted Cruz the only remaining Republican candidate who is against allowing transgender women to use the women's room. So he's got that niche. But insofar as today is the day to make a deal with Ted Cruz, I propose that we as Americans offer Ted Cruz this deal. Fine, Ted. We'll give you this. We will elect you Ted Cruz, trust Ted, outsider, anti-establishment, former solicitor general, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, you are hereby elected president of the bathroom. You want to be president? You feel strongly on this bathroom thing? We will elect you bathroom president. This seems to be your life ambition, president of the bathroom. It can be your little kingdom. It already includes a throne. And you get to rule the bathroom. And by the bathroom, I don't mean all bathrooms. I mean one bathroom. I've picked one. It's in North Carolina. It's at a rest stop near the wet and wild Emerald Point right outside of Greensboro. We used to call this job bathroom attendant, but you, Ted, you get to be president of the bathroom. The deal works out for everyone. You get the position, you get the title, you get the respect. You'll hear the title day in, day out. Hey, can I get some hand soap, Mr. President? Clog in the second stall, Mr. President. And we get to know that at least one bathroom, the wet and wild Emerald Point outside of Greensboro, is safe because of you, bathroom president Ted Cruz. On the show today, well, it's really what Ted was talking about, the future of the American dream, and in the spiel, where politicians go wrong. Talking about politics, but first, a futurist with the most fundamental question that this country asks itself about the future. The future is here. That might not be true. But what is true is the futurist is here. 
Brian David Johnson is, well, this is his current job. He's with Arizona State University as a futurist in residence. Good gig, right? At the Center for Science and the Imagination. He's also doing a project, the Future of the American Dream Project. He just interviewed me about that for years. He was Intel's futurist. Hello, Brian. Hello, Mike. So we have a show on the Panoply Network called Working, and it starts with this question. I think it's great for you. What's your name and what do you do? We know it's Brian David Johnson, but you're a futurist. What's that mean? So as a futurist, I work with organizations and groups of people who need to make decisions today that may not pay off for 10, 15, 20 years in the future. And so I work with them to model the future and figure out what steps they need to take to get to the future they want, but also to avoid the future they don't want. So this sounds multidisciplinary. Are there statistics involved? Is there sociology involved? Depending on the company, do you have to get to know their sector? All of the above, yeah. So it is a mix of social science, of technical research, of economic and economic models. Uh, use some cultural history, actually, because history is the on-ramp to the future. Mm-hmm. Do a lot of global trend data. I mean, I even use a little bit of science fiction, kind of based on all that to model out what the future could be. Which science fiction writer got it better than most in terms of accuracy, not in terms of plot or character? Or well, anything. with many of them, they just say, if you want to hit a bullseye, yeah. throw a lot of darts. Yeah. So you can pick people like Asimov. Who, wrote, people, who wrote so many books. So yeah. many books. Heinlein so many fiction. was pretty good with... he. He predicted AstroTurf and the microwave, and Philip K. Dick got a lot right, but a ton wrong, too. But Philip K. Dick also got more what it would feel like to live in the future, which is also what I do as a futurist. It's not—I don't make predictions. What I model is what will it— feel like to be a human and live in the future. And then there's more recent authors like Cory Doctorow and William Gibson, who really, along with Bruce Sterling, really, really talked about the world that we're living in today. Right. And I guess what those writers talk about is the feeling of alienation or the feeling of uh, how technology is kind of getting in the way of what we always thought of as humanity. Well, and each of them will tell you, specifically Dr. O will tell you that they have an opinion, that Mm -hmm. they're not futurists, that what they are is they are activists. And they use their science fiction to talk about possible good parts of the future. But usually, you know, because most most people don't want to talk about the optimistic side. They want to talk about the vast majority of science fiction is dystopian. And so I understand the appeal of that in the present because it's uh, addressing your anxiety. And there's a part of it where you're saying to yourself, oh, yeah, I am worried about this. Look, it could happen. Although Star Trek was actually mostly utopian. But, you know, what's what's your take on it? Even though science fiction is mostly dystopian, are you optimistic or pessimistic and why? Well, I'm an optimist, Mike. So I'm a declared optimist, which is probably the most radical thing I've ever done as a futurist. I've literally say the future is not an accident. The future is built every day by the actions of people. So if you believe that, and I do, it means we should all get together and build a future that's awesome. We shouldn't get together and build a future that sucks. So that makes me an optimist because it's a choice. It turns out people really like pessimistic futurists. I've actually oftentimes share a stage with people. I'm there. I say, hey, we're all doing good. The future's going to be awesome. We have a lot of work to do. And then you've got the guy or gal sitting next to me who goes, you know, everything's going to end on Thursday. Yeah. Well, everybody wants to talk to that person. Right. There's a big market for that. But why? Do people, does it plan to our psychology or is it mostly about that anxiety, telling people that what they're worried about, they should be worried about? There's always been a big market for that. Well, and part of, many would say that that's part of the kind of the human brain, that mm-hmm. we're kind of Wired for threat. Without it, we would have killed in the savannah years ago. Right. So we're wired for threat. But the other part I would say, and this goes back to sort of science fiction and dystopias, utopias are boring. Like, 
everybody being great. Like, if you write a story where you have your character wake up in the morning and she has a great morning and everything goes great yes. and, and everything's wonderful and she goes to bed, not only is that a really terrible story, you're going to hate her. Yeah. Because nobody's life is like that. All of our lives have different amounts of strife and different amounts of problems. And yeah. so what science fiction allows us to do and how I use it as a futurist is it allows us to explore the dark regions. It allows us to explore that future we don't want, not because we're going to completely stop it, but it allows us to explore that so that we're prepared for it and that we can keep an eye out for it. And a lot of those science fiction authors that I collaborate with, that's what they're doing is they're saying, based upon all this science, based upon all this work, these are some possible human impacts, cultural, societal impacts. Let's discuss them now because science fiction gives you that language to talk about the future. Futurist is a great word. And of course, it invites comparisons to, you know, clairvoyance and psychics. But take me to Intel. What was maybe a debate where you were on one side of the debate? Uh, some other people were saying, no, it's going to go this way. And then how did it play out? And if you would, make yourself the hero and be right. So, yeah, we'll, we'll tell you <laughs> an optimistic story. Um, so, no, and I actually, and I wrote a book about this. So back in 2005, um, one of the things that I was looking out to this far off date called 2015. Yeah. And in that far off time, I said that we would be living in a world of screens. We would have small screens in our pockets, screens on the walls, screens, screens, screens everywhere. And all those screens, what would we be doing with them? You know, back then it was all about email. It was a little bit of gaming, but it was all productivity. And what I said is that people were going to be using it for entertainment, for TV, for movies, for social networking, for games. And people looked at me like I was insane. Mm. They're like, no, 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 that's serious computing is, is meant to be, you know, it's a, it's a business application. This is what we're supposed to do. And I said, no, the majority of what people will be doing is we're using it for entertainment. And so, you know, flash forward to 2015 and the book I wrote about it was called Screen Future that kind of looks at this world of all these interconnected screens. And we're, we're living in that time now. We're living in sort of the screenification of computational power. Because of that, how did Intel change its strategy or decide to emphasize certain products and not others? Well, you can actually watch over the last five years that they've made this shift where before people thought of them and they talked about themselves as we were a laptop company or we're a server company or we're a phone or a tablet company. It was always aligned to products. And now you actually see them making a change to saying, well, we're an experience company. We're all about what can computing do for you? And that's one of the things that we worked on for a long time was saying, Intel is a manufacturing company. They make a complex product on a massive scale. It's mind-blowing what they're able to do. But what they are is they're an intelligence company. They have the ability to take a chip and put it into something and make it intelligent. They did it for a long time with desktops and laptops and so forth. But now you can see the company strategy branching out and starting to put it in large computational devices like servers and things like that, but also small wearables and things like that. Among Apple, Google, and Facebook, is there any major initiative that those three huge companies are really emphasizing that you think might be wrong? One of the things that I find fascinating that everybody is working on is artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence and deep learning, that the work that we're doing and the work that's sort of happening is we're really in this interesting moment where it's really starting to take off and that we really will be living in a time where we will have sentient tools. We will have tools that can think. We'll have, literally have hammers that can think. That's okay. And you can see each of them using it in different ways. You can see the way that Google's using it mainly because of using um, object recognition and being able to use deep learning to understand what's going on. Google's using it in very, very different ways, not only when it's searched, but also with a lot of their autonomous cars. So they're all kind of applying it in different ways, but none of them has really, I think, sort of got it when it comes yeah. to what will it be like to be a human being and live in a time where our tools can think for us. 
And that I find really fascinating. That, to me, is an exciting time, but also means we have a lot of work to do today because how we're training people, we're not training people to actually work with tools that can think. So I want to ask you about a couple other things you do. The military stuff. You teach at the Air Force Academy at West Point. What do you teach the cadets and the cadets? I'm always impressed by the young men and women who are in a military. I mean, these are some of the most capable human beings you would meet. I tell a lot of people, if you want to be optimistic about the future, go to these academies and see these young men and women, wildly intelligent, who have given their lives over to service. And so what I try to do is work with them to give them their tools so that as they make their way through their career, and many of these people are sort of destined for great. They're destined to stand at the, you know, right next to the next president of the United States to say, here's the tool that you can use to kind of model these possible futures. Could you give me a tangible example of something that you teach the cadets that always makes them go, wow, I never thought of it that way? One of the things that we do is around cybersecurity. So I do a lot of work in cyber. I mean, I'm a nerd. It's where I come from. So we look at cyber. And very, very early on, we began to notice that as you modeled where things were going with cyber threats, is that especially in the military, that the military operates, you know, they operate on a massive scale, but they pretty much operated either in conflict or out of conflict. You know, the way that the processes and procedures are set up with the military is you're either at war or not at war. Mm -hmm. And if you are, a whole bunch of things happen. And if you're not, a whole bunch of things happen. The thing about cyberspace, which is so tough, the thing about sort of cyber warfare is you are both at war and at peace at the same time. Mm -hmm. It is literally a quantum reality, that you are literally living two realities. And from, if you think about that, the effect of it, intellectually, it kind of makes sense. But the knock-on effects for the armed services are pretty massive. And that's a lot of what they've been going through, is trying to understand what does that what does that look like? Like, how do we create the process and procedures? How do we train the next generation to actually be able to live or live in a state where you have two opposing ideas that have to live next to each other? And that, for me, is kind of how I start a lot of my conversations with these cadets. So in doing this Future of the American Dream project, where you interviewed me, where you talked to all sorts of populations and people with different backgrounds, what do you think of the idea? Is it a good idea? Is it a real idea? What ch has changed your mind the most? I've been struck because for me, and part of being a futurist and part of doing foresight is to not have an opinion. Mm -hmm. So this started as a, a personal project because I didn't know the answer, what was the future of the American dream. And I've had many moments where I call it, I've been pushed in the chest, where somebody has said something that has stopped me, dead stop. And I've had a few of those, and they've really, really humbled me. And when I start stacking those together, um, I begin to see, almost like we talked before, these two different states. That you begin to see one state where people feel like the American dream is dead. You people feel like the American dream was never for them. That it is something that was experienced by the previous generation and they won't get it. So they very much see it as something that is irrelevant, dead, and even sometimes toxic. On the other side, there are people who firmly believe in the American dream, that it drives us, that it's something that is incredibly important to who we are, not only as a nation, but as an economy and as a people. And those two things are realities that are true. Those two things are actually happening together. And for the thing that has really changed me is the kind of middle ground. Because often when you do this, you kind of map to the middle when you look at extremes. And that mapping to the middle is looking at how we can both be kind of all right, mm -hmm. but also have a lot of work to do at mm -hmm. the same time. And that's hard, actually. And it sounds so simple when you say it to people, but oftentimes when I say that, I get in front of audiences. I've been doing town halls. So as you know, I've been doing town halls all over the U.S., when you say that, that doesn't sit well with people. To say that you can at the same time be doing pretty good, 
but at the same time have some serious work to do. See, but I think this brings us back to your idea as a stated optimist. I think that's what optimism is. And people don't understand optimism think, oh, you think everything's going to be all right. Pessimists also, by the way, will always say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. Maybe optimists should start saying that because the realistic <laughs> optimist is things are pretty good, but we still have a lot of work to do. I don't know any optimist, any real good optimist with a foundation and a grounding in fact who wouldn't say that for most things. Well, and oftentimes- Optimism I, doesn't mean don't worry about it. Right, right. Optimism oftentimes means doing the right thing or doing positive things in the face of tragedy, in the face of things that are wrong. And oftentimes, I have no problem with pessimists, actually. I deal with a lot of them. Yeah. But what I tell people is that you need to be responsible for your dystopia. You can't walk into the room, drop a dystopia, and walk out. That's a jerk move. Like, you can't do that. It's it's the foul. It's definitely a party foul. Yeah. Like, it's your worst, the worst house guest ever is to drop it and yeah. leave. So what I tell people is, great, tell me the darkest thing. Tell me that it's all going to hell. That's fine. Now you have to tell me what you're going to do about it. And so oftentimes, people aren't taking personal responsibility. Again, they're not owning up to the fact that human beings build the future, right? That it's oftentimes it's not something that springs out of, you know, Washington, D.C. It's not something that springs out of Silicon Valley or, or anywhere else in the world, that it's actually built by people every day in every community. The future is very local. And by being pessimistic, I think oftentimes you're not holding yourself responsible to the responsibility that you have to yourself, to your family, to your community, to your state, to your nation, to the world, to actually do something. Brian David Johnson is the futurist in residence, although he's been the futurist on the run. He's been the futurist off the leash these days. He's at Arizona State University Center for Science and the Imagination. His project is the future of the American Dream Project. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, it's all politics. Politicians are often out of their depth when it comes to issues. They set standards for the poverty line, but they're all rich. They try to regulate the internet, but then say things like, oh, I'm terrible on the computer. I let my grandkids teach me about it. They make military policy, but only 80 members of the House of Representatives and 13 members of the Senate are veterans. But if there's one thing that politicians should have some expertise in, it's politics. And yet politicians, especially the ones running for president, have made some of their worst arguments, not on questions of the minimum wage or fracking or trade policy or war, but on actual arguments that explain their standing in political races. On Meet the Press this Sunday, Chuck Todd asked Bernie this question. 17 of the 25 states with the highest levels of income inequality have held primaries. 16 of those 17 states have been won by Hillary Clinton, not by you. Why? Well, because poor people don't vote. I mean, that's just a fact. Polyfact rated that statement as mostly true. Sanders made claims that 80% of the poor didn't vote. It's actually more like 68.5%. But yeah, and if you look at the income ranges, the higher you go up in income, the higher turnout is. Under 30,000 in salary, turnout's 31.5%. But even 30 to 40,000 in salary, it gets above 40%. At 75 to $99,000, it's over 50%. And for those making 150,000 or more, turnout's 55.6%. By by the way, 44.4% for people making over $150,000. I would not take things for granted, you people. You're the ones with the taxable income. Get out there and protect your incomes. Seriously, you're the top 10% 
Barely more than 50% of you care to vote. The poor need to vote more, as does everyone else, but especially the poor. So Sanders was right about this issue, but he was wrong about the political analysis. He was asked to explain his lack of success, and he trotted out, poor people don't vote as an explanation. Poor people don't vote is a truism. It has much to do with Bernie's losses as people in Singapore don't chew gum. Let me present you with two sets of facts. The first is from the Euromonitor International Report on Gum Chewing in Singapore. Under the regulation of imports and exports, the importation into Singapore of any chewing gum is prohibited. The only exception is chewing gum of therapeutic values. The type of gum is permitted for sale only in pharmacies and dental clinics, with the names of buyers required to be taken. Mentos withdrew from Singapore in 2011. Orbitz now, it's only gum, and it's a medicinal gum at that. That wasn't our main point, though, was it? No. Here's John Dickerson on Face the Nation. As you were asked about this on Meet the Press, and you said, well, poor people don't vote. But in states like Ohio, Florida, New York, and even Michigan, which you won, those uh, who would be those earning less than 30,000 ended up voting more for Hillary Clinton. So that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, by poor. Well, first thought, uh, one of the challenges that we have as a nation is that we have one of the lowest voter turnouts in general of any major country on earth. You know, in the last national election, 63% of the American people didn't vote, and those numbers were worse for young people and for low-income people. Okay, I get it. What's Bernie supposed to say? A populist is always going to say he lost because of a systematic means of oppressing the votes of the population, and the populist will always believe it. But what about the self-styled common sense candidate? Here's John Kasich also on Face the Nation. And I have some new numbers here that just came out of New Hampshire. And let me tell you, uh, Hillary is at 50, Trump is at 31, Hillary's at 48, Cruz is at 34, and in the third matchup, Hillary's at 36, and John Kasich's at 50. And what's really amazing is they surveyed the voters in New Hampshire who actually voted in the Republican primary, which Trump won, where I finished second. And today, according to this poll, I lead Donald Trump 26 to 22. In other words, anywhere there is a hypothetical matchup, John Kasich does really well. Even in places like New Hampshire, where John Kasich lost to Donald Trump by 20 points in real life, real vote, where they counted the voters, 55,000 more voting for Trump, but he wins by four points in pretend real life. The lesson is clear. John Kasich is the candidate of your imagination. He really is running a storybook campaign. All right, close your eyes. Imagine the White House with John Kasich in it. It's easy. See how easy that was? He's an excellent imaginary president. And he predicts in his hypothetical presidency that unemployment will go down, that consumer confidence will go up. You want to know why? Because all those things are calculated by surveys. And he does really well when someone asks a survey question, and John Kasich is one of the potential answers. It's not just losers who offer terrible reasons for why they're losing. The winners on victory night always seek to explain their victories in the most self-serving way. Ted Cruz thanking his voters for sending a message to the media and the Washington elites. Iowa has sent notice that the Republican nominee and the next president of the United States will not be chosen by the media. You know what's good for sending a message? Twitter. Twitter's good. You know what's less efficient? Getting a babysitter, going out to a Des Moines middle school gym, finding parking, saying hey to Jerry who steered you wrong on the Santorum candidacy last time around, to send a message. What was the message? He's a Christian, I'm a Christian. What was the message to the media? 
Uh, you know that guy from New York City, Captain Crazy Pants? No, thank you. Was that to the media? Was that more self-preservation? Here's how Hillary Clinton explained her New York victory. In part, she said it was... Not enough to diagnose problems. You have to explain how you'd actually solve the problems. Is that what happened? Is that why she won? Is that why she beat Bernie Sanders? Because of the diagnosis versus solution dynamic? She's a senator from New York State. And she was also Secretary of State and First Lady, perhaps the most impressive resume in U.S. history. She ran against a wild-haired socialist who failed to make any notable inroads among black voters. New York State has several black voters. So was it really this referendum on solutions? Or was it a choice between two people where one of the people was Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton was the other person? My favorite self-serving explanation, though, is this sort of thing. This is a state and a country of big-hearted, open-minded, straight-talking, hard-working people. In other words, I won because you all are smart. This is the political equivalent of, my gosh, what a great-looking crowd. And I know you just listeners agree with me, because you're all so handsome. Andrea Salenzi is the hard-working, jive-talking, finger-popping producer of The Gist. Steve Lichtai is the toe-tapping, head-scratching, raccoon-tickling executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is a bear-baiting, monkey-fighting, flip-flopping, spider-wrangling chief content officer of Panoply. The Gist. Our listeners are big-hearted. And soon they will be open-hearted because an enlarged heart often leads to surgery. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.